and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by T.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Redemption Songs, Reggae and Rastafari. If you ever get your hands on a time machine, your first move should obviously be to take in the 1976 P-Funk Earth Tour, described at the beginning of the previous episode. But where might you go next? One reasonable suggestion would be a quick hop ahead of only two years to the One Love Jamaican Peace Concert, held in Kingston in 1978. Organized by a Rastafari group called the Twelve Tribes of Israel, it featured the island's most prominent musicians, and was at the time compared to Woodstock. The event also demonstrated in helpful ways how the themes of Africana thought were being taken up by those musicians. Peter Tosh expressed the sort of militancy we have seen flourish in the philosophical wake of Malcolm X. Tosh performed his song Equal Rights, in which he states, Everyone is crying out for peace, none is crying out for justice. I don't want no peace, I need equal rights and justice. The headline act was, of course, Bob Marley, wearing a shirt emblazoned with a map of Africa. He was more inclined to play the role of peacemaker. He did sing the song War, the significance of which we will return to discuss later, but he also performed the song that gave the concert its name, One Love, and boldly called the leaders of the rival political parties in Jamaica, the People's National Party and the Jamaica Labour Party, to come up on stage and shake hands. As this event begins to suggest, Reggae music has been one of the most powerful ever means for the dissemination of Africana thought. The intimidatingly named singer, Burning Spear, released not one but two albums with the name Marvis Garvey in their titles. Garvey's program echoes loudly in Peter Tosh's song African, which starts with the blunt message, Don't care where you come from, as long as you're a black man, you're an African. No mind your nationality, you have got the identity of an African. As for Marley, he sang about turning the tables on slave drivers, and about being a small axe capable of chopping down the tree of racist depression. Tracks like 400 Years and Exodus spoke of spiritual exile and a return to the promised land in Africa. Marley and other reggae artists came to these ideas, so familiar to us from the history of Africana thought, through a tradition we have not yet considered, Rastafari. It was a religion, or a way of life, or perhaps a socio-political movement, more shortly on the question of the right label, that began in Jamaica and was exported to the rest of the Caribbean, to Africa itself, and ultimately across the world. To understand it, we should look briefly at earlier popular resistance movements in Jamaica. The island had been a British colony of immense economic value, one which the empire controlled only with difficulty, though it would not become independent until 1962. Tacky's War, which took place over the course of 1760 and 1761, stood out as one of the most disruptive slave rebellions in the Americas before the Haitian Revolution that began a few decades later. The Baptist War, launched by Samuel Sharp on Christmas Day in 1831, was similarly disruptive and is widely viewed as having helped to bring about the abolition of slavery in the British Empire. Faithful listeners will recall our discussion of Frederick Douglass's expression of this point in his West India Emancipation speech, which we mentioned back in episode 48. Abolition did not, however, put an end to popular defiance on the island. In 1865, the Morant Bay Rebellion, led by Paul Bogle, fought for the interests of workers and farmhands whose material conditions had not been much improved since the 1830s. As with Sharp's revolt, religion played a part here, 
Bogle was a deacon at a church founded by George William Gordon, who has been credited, and by the British governor at the time, blamed and executed for inspiring the rebellion. We need not be surprised, then, that Rastafari also fused elements of religion and political thought, especially because it blossomed from roots apparently planted by that central figure of Jamaican political thought, Marcus Garvey. One aspect of Garvey's message that is especially relevant here is what some scholars refer to as his Ethiopianism. That term is sometimes used narrowly to describe a Christian religious movement in Africa in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, one characterized by independence from European denominations. The movement most famously flourished in South Africa, where Henry McNeil Turner had some influence on it, given his visit to that country, as mentioned back in episode 64. The term Ethiopianism is also used more broadly, however, to cover all forms of Pan-Africanist thought, especially of the religious variety that is couched in language centering on Ethiopia. We tried to make clear in our coverage of the 18th and 19th centuries that, during that time, Ethiopia, as a name and symbol, loomed large in the minds of Africana thinkers. In accordance with Homeric and biblical references, Ethiopia was praised as a site of historical glory, and the word Ethiopia was widely used as a synonym for Africa as a whole, and all people of African descent as well. You might remember that a figure as early and pioneering as Phyllis Wheatley called herself an Ethiope, even though she was from West Africa. One can hardly keep count of the number of thinkers from that era who quoted the Book of Psalms, chapter 68, verse 31, Princes shall come forth out of Egypt, Ethiopia shall soon stretch forth her hands unto God. In keeping with this tradition, Garvey regularly said things like, The faith that we have is a faith that will ultimately take us back to that ancient place, that ancient position that we once occupied when Ethiopia was in her glory. You can find those words, uttered in 1922, in the popular collection edited by Amy Jakes Garvey, The Philosophy and Opinions of Marcus Garvey. On the other hand, you will search in vain in his published speeches and writings for a quotation attributed to him, that is regularly understood as the very point of origin of the Rastafari movement. Supposedly, he said something like, Look to Africa when a king is crowned, for your redemption is at hand. It is often suggested that he said this as early as 1916, prior to leaving Jamaica for the United States. One historian has suggested, however, that it might have been something he said while promoting a play he wrote and produced in 1929, entitled The Coronation of the King and Queen of Africa. The fact that we're forced to speculate in this manner about when he said and even whether he said this is illustrative of an important fact about Rastafari. As a grassroots social movement rather than a mainly literary production of the elite, it has always included heavy reliance on oral traditions. If indeed Garvey said something along the lines of the famed quotation in 1929, though, one can imagine the psychological impact on those who followed him when, just one year later, Haile Selassie was crowned emperor in Ethiopia, with his full regal title reportedly being His Imperial Majesty Haile Selassie I, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Conquering Lion of the Tribe of Judah, Elect of God, Emperor of Ethiopia. Selassie's original name was Ras Tafare Makonen, Ras meaning prince or king. But the movement that took his name proclaimed that Selassie was no mere human prince, he was divine, an African divinity foretold in biblical tradition. We need to distinguish Garvey's significance as a prophet in the Rastafari tradition from how the man himself felt about this particular offshoot from his remarkably fertile teachings. As we mentioned in our episode on Garvey, he was at first a supporter of Selassie. 
Indeed, some scholars identify his relevant prophecy with his printed comment at the time of Selassie's coronation, the psalmist prophesied that princes would come out of Egypt and Ethiopia would stretch forth her hands unto God. We have no doubt that the time is now come. Garvey deemed it at that point the duty of the whole black race to assist in every way to hold up the hand of Emperor Ras Tafari. But as we also mentioned, Garvey eventually became sharply critical of Selassie while the latter was in exile during the Italian occupation of Ethiopia. In a searing editorial, Garvey praised Menelik II, a previous emperor, as a political personality of patriotic racial character. He accused Selassie, by contrast, of that greatest of wrongs in his eyes, racial disloyalty. He also charged Selassie with condoning and practicing slavery in Ethiopia. In the process of decrying this as wrong, he made his position on Selassie's divinity rather clear. Haile Selassie is just an ordinary man like any other human being. Garvey was also known to disdain departures from traditional Christianity in general, complaining in 1934, a large number of our people are leaving the established churches to join these religions, religions that howl, religions that create saints, religions that dance to frantic emotion. Despite his antagonistic view of Selassie in the late 1930s, Garvey did a lot to lay the groundwork for the Rastafari tradition. Regardless of whether he in fact instructed his followers to look to Africa for the crowning of a king, he exhorted his followers not to see God as white and to worship him rather through what he called the spectacles of Ethiopia. This is arguably precisely what a Garveyite named Leonard Percival Howell, along with a few others, began to advocate through preaching the divinity of Haile Selassie. Oral tradition is not all we have when it comes to Howell, given his book The Promised Key, which he published in 1935. He is known to have drawn on unorthodox Afro-Caribbean religious texts from the previous decade, like The Holy Pibi by Robert Athlili Rogers of Anguilla and The Royal Parchment Scroll of Black Supremacy by Jamaican author Fitz Valentine Petersburg. The marriage of a political to a religious agenda was present from the start. In Petersburg's book, renowned among scholars for its bizarre stream-of-consciousness style, we find the claim, Ethiopia is the succeeding kingdom to the Anglo-Saxon kingdom. Howell included these words in his book and stated clearly, His Majesty Raz Tafari is the head over all man, for he is the supreme god. Howell told his followers that they owed loyalty only to Selassie, not the British imperial power. He also tapped into the long-running idea of repatriation to Africa, raising money by selling pictures of Selassie that he claimed were passports that would enable the bearer to go to Ethiopia. In the decades that followed, this would continue to be a theme in Rastafari. Starting in the late 19th century, African Americans largely gave up on emigrationist schemes as impractical, but they continued to have appeal in Jamaica, a sign of the frustration caused by the lack of economic or political improvement under the British. After independence, Jamaican governments actually welcomed this aspect of the Rastafari program. Norman Washington Manley, leader of the People's National Party, or PNP, sent delegations to African countries to explore this as a means of removing surplus population. But the situation changed after a visit of Haile Selassie himself to Jamaica in 1966, because Selassie urged liberation before repatriation, a slogan duly adopted by Rastas. We saw with Garvey's organization, the UNIA, that black liberation movements have sometimes been less than progressive in attitudes towards women, even as they offered an important platform for female activists like the two Amy Garveys, and we see something similar with Rastafari. Haile Selassie's wife, the Empress 
Waizaro Manan, was taken as a paradigm of female empowerment by figures like Miriam Lennox, a follower of Howell as of 1941. Lennox said that if Selassie was the alpha, or beginning, Manan was the omega, or final end. Like other Rastas, she saw Selassie within the context of the ancient kings of Israel. Think of Solomon and his relationship with the Queen of Sheba. With role models like that in mind, Lennox argued that women could occupy any leadership position within the ranks of Rastafari and dismissed the notion that women should be silent in religious contexts. More generally, she held that in Rastafari belief, woman is a part of the man, a part of the man even himself. While this illustrates the appeal and adaptability of Howell's movement, we should not overestimate its success in either the short or the long term. In the short term, Howell's own career was not a particularly happy one. He was jailed more than once by the government and eventually packed off to an insane asylum. He died in obscurity in 1981. In the longer term, Rastafari claims the allegiance of only a small fraction of Jamaicans, a percentage in the low single digits. That number includes all the different subdivisions, or as they are called, mansions, of Rastafari, such as Twelve Tribes, Niabingi, and Bobo Ashanti. The low numbers of practicing Rastas should not in fact be surprising, given that Jamaica often boasts of having more Christian churches per square mile than any other country. Yet, Rastafari has also been embraced in other countries, and its distinctive traits are known across the world. You can almost certainly think of some examples yourself, many of which became characteristic of the movement long after its beginnings in the 1930s. There's the use of red, gold, and green, taken from the imperial Ethiopian flag. There's the wearing of dreadlocks, which only began to be associated with the movement in the late 1940s, despite eventually becoming almost synonymous with it. There's the smoking of marijuana, or ganja, and the strictly natural diet called aital, which forbids consumption of meat, tobacco, canned food, or alcohol. And then there's the innovative use of language. Where Jamaican dialect would standardly use me as a first personal pronoun, both in subject and object positions, Rastas often use I in both subject and object positions. This allows a consistent rejection of the object position in favor of the subject position, while also evoking the Roman numeral in Selassie's title. When this is doubled in the common phrase, I and I, this can either be a first-person plural, or when seemingly used as a first-person singular, an allusion to the presence of God within each person. In some cases, words are altered to eliminate negative connotations. Rastas might say insincerely instead of sincerely to avoid speaking of sin, or for a similar reason, say livicate instead of dedicate. Conversely, a word may be altered to remove a possible positive connotation, as when downpressor is used instead of oppressor. Those who approach Rastafari primarily as a religious movement will focus naturally on the veneration of Selassie as God, along with the many features of Rastafari grounded in biblical texts. For example, the smoking of ganja is defended by citing such passages as Genesis 3.18, Thou shalt eat the herb of the earth, and Exodus 10.12, Eat every herb of the land. The growing of dreadlocks is also connected to the Bible. Leviticus 21.5, They shall not make baldness upon their head, and to the vow of the Nazarites not to cut their hair. More generally, Rastas identify strongly with the plight of the ancient Jews in exile. This is why they call their own promised land Ethiopia, Zion, and why the oppressive context of the diaspora is called Babylon, something you'll have encountered if you've listened to even a little bit of reggae. If you've listened to more than a little, then you will have encountered the insulting epithet baldhead, which I can't help but take personally, even if it's just a corollary of the injunction to let the hair grow. 
As we've seen, though, Rastafari was from the start also a social and political movement, and it must be recognized as distinctively philosophical, too. No less an observer than Walter Rodney, whom we'll be covering in an upcoming podcast, said, In our epoch, the Rastafari have represented the leading force of this expression of black consciousness. They have rejected this Philistine, white West Indian society. They have sought their cultural and spiritual roots in Ethiopia and Africa. The philosophical nature of Rastafari is also clear from some of its central practices. Instead of formal church services, Rastas participate in meetings called reasonings, in which participants are invited to engage in wide-ranging discussion of the tenets of Rastafari. The question of whether to call it a religion has been taken up by Midas Chawani, a scholar of Rastafari in South Africa. He found that there, many Rastas resist applying the word religion to their beliefs and practices, preferring to use more holistic terms like way of life. One reason is that Rastas often have a negative attitude toward organized religions, which they regard as instruments of social control. That fits with something we've seen in other areas of Africana thought, namely the strident objections provoked by the tight bond between religion and colonialism. Despite their use of the Bible, many Rastas accuse Christianity in particular of being a white man's religion, which engages in death worship. We can find this sort of sentiment in reggae too. For instance, in one of Bob Marley's most provocatively militant lyrics from the song Talking Blues, I feel like bombing a church now that you know the preacher is lying. It is, of course, reggae in general and the music of Bob Marley in particular that explains why Rastafari is so well-known around the world. Yusi Kwayana, a Guyanese Pan-Africanist, argues that the power of art that Bob Marley's music represented did more to popularize the real issues of African liberation than several decades of back-breaking work by Pan-Africanists and international revolutionaries. Marley's career, like Rastafari in general, was situated squarely on the fault line between the spiritual and the political, and he experienced more than a few tremors as a result. He was born in a rural area of the parish of St. Anne to a white father and black mother. But, as famously mentioned in his song, No Woman, No Cry, he came of age in the slums of Trenchtown in a public building project called the Government Yard. His embrace of the empowering forces of Rastafari and Pan-Africanism was, no doubt, related to this experience of inequality. After spending some time working in the United States, he came under the influence of fellow Trenchtown resident Mortimer Plano, probably the most important Rasta in between Howell and Marley. It was on Plano's suggestion that some of the island's foremost scholars at the University of the West Indies produced the Rastafari Report, the first serious study of the movement. Plano is also famous for his role in the 1966 visit of Haile Selassie to Jamaica as he greeted the emperor and helped him emerge from the plane to face the massive crowd that had gathered to welcome him. Plano's significance as a writer has, by contrast, been little recognized, but he produced a fascinating document in 1969 entitled The Earth, Most Strangest Man, an account of the meaning of Rastafari that, as the title suggests, embraces its strangeness. After Marley's conversion, his music frequently referred to Rastafari, with titles by Marley and the Whalers including such entries as Rasta Man Chant, Soja Say, Natty Dread, and Ja Lev, the last of these dedicated, sorry, livicated, to the proposition that Haile Selassie had not really passed away, as reported in 1975. Asked about his critical view of Christianity during a 1980 interview in Zurich, he said that it was wrong to tell people they could go to heaven only after death. Heaven should be on earth, and for black people, Africa is our heaven because that is where we come from. 
for Swiss people, he allows, it might be in Switzerland. In an interview with Gil Noble on the show Like It Is, he was asked who his greatest influences were and answered Marcus Garvey, along, of course, with Haile Selassie. And Marley became one of the most important communicators of the philosophical thought of both of these two figures. We mentioned in our episode on Garvey that Marley drew on a speech Garvey delivered in Nova Scotia for one of the most memorable lines in all of reggae music from Redemption Song, Emancipate yourselves from mental slavery, none but ourselves can free our mind. Similarly, perhaps the easiest way to appreciate Selassie as a thinker is to listen to Marley's song, War, the lyrics of which are entirely drawn from a speech Selassie made in front of the United Nations General Assembly in 1963. The song thus lacks a rhyme scheme, yet it flows masterfully, bringing new meaning to Selassie's statement of racial equality and opposition to European colonialism. While Marley was by far the most famous Jamaican musician to weave these themes into his work, he was not the only one to do so. Reggae grew out of the earlier musical style, ska, which also sometimes featured Rastafari and political themes. Don Drummond, for instance, released songs called Marcus Garvey and Addis Ababa, the latter of course referring to the Ethiopian city. Other examples include Desmond Decker's Israelites and Count Ossie's Another Moses and Babylon Gone. The music itself reflected Pan-Africanism. Ossie made deliberate use of the African buru drumming style, in part on the grounds that it was not corrupted by Babylon. The Wailers even included a Yoruba lookout call at the beginning of Lively Up Yourself, the first track on the album Natty Dread. The growth of Rastafari through music in some ways heightened the tensions between this religious minority and the mainstream. The government newspaper of Jamaica, The Gleaner, had been working hard to promote the idea that the island was a unique haven of racial harmony. This complacent celebration of Jamaican exceptionalism, which may remind us of similar claims made about Brazil, was undermined by Rastas. Thus, the Gleaner put out critical editorials, like one entitled Rascally Rastafarians, in which Clinton Parchment, demonstrating a hidebound nature consistent with his name, called Rastas lazy, ganja-smoking good-for-nothings. In this period, Rastas were also subjected to police brutality and hauled in front of unsympathetic judges, something else mentioned in more than a few ska and reggae songs. As the 1970s wore on, though, things started to change. The commercial success of reggae brought figures like Marley tremendous fame, so the government likewise changed its tune. The Gleaner started to offer Rastas more generous coverage, and the PNP under Michael Manley, the son of Norman Manley, ran on a platform in harmony with the reggae of Marley and others, forging alliances with other third world nations and freeing Jamaica from dependence on imperialist powers. Marley and the Whalers chose to back Manley in the 1972 election, performing on a literal bandwagon during a political parade. Music was a powerful weapon in the political battle. As Marley himself noted, the music influenced the people, the music do everything for the people, the music tell the people what to do in Jamaica. Unfortunately, Marley's spiritual and musical crusade was answered with more literal weapons. Probably because of this involvement in politics, he was the victim of an assassination attempt when his home was shot up in 1976. Defiantly, he performed at a concert right after this terrifying event. This set a model for the last years of his life, in which Marley continued to promote Pan-Africanism and perform his music, despite formidable obstacles, especially the illness that would take him too young. He had time to travel to Ethiopia in 1978 and to record in 1979 his most political album yet, Survival, 
It features the iconic song Zimbabwe with its opening declaration of anti-colonial defiance, every man got a right to decide his own destiny. Marley wrote it as the War of Independence raged on in what was then still called Rhodesia, but he was able to travel to the country to perform the song as Zimbabwe celebrated its independence. In the many episodes we've already devoted to the 20th century, we've been bouncing between the Americas, the Caribbean, and Africa itself. So it's appropriate that, having used P-Funk and Marley as hooks to discuss Afrofuturism and Rastafari, we have one installment left on the relation between music and Africana philosophy. Like Marley going to Zimbabwe, we are going back to Africa. And there will be plenty more hooks next time, because we'll be looking at the hard-hitting saxophone stylings of the father of Afrobeat, Fela Kuti, and using him as a way into the topic of philosophy in post-colonial Africa. It will, in the words of one of Fela's song titles, involve sorrow, tears, and blood, but there will be some redemption too, here on The History of Africana Philosophy. Mm-hmm.